Amen. Thank you, Trio. Take your Bibles out and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, today's title, Let's File for Separation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll begin reading in verse 14. And we'll read down through uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. As you find your place in your copy of God's Word, I, I do want to mention a couple of needs. First of all, if you would keep uh, Wayne and Elaine Rhodes in your prayer, uh, in your prayers, Friday she will be having uh, some very extensive surgery to have a kidney removed. There is a tumor on that kidney. Uh, they're a little uncertain yet about the makeup of that tumor, but. She has, she's already a cancer survivor one time, and so there's a lot of uh, fear and concern there. And so pray for uh, Elaine this coming Friday. Uh, also, speaking of, of missions a moment ago, I want you to keep in mind about our Lottie Moon offering for international missions that is rapidly approaching. Our goal this year is $40,000. Uh, that was our goal last year, and the church gave $63,000 uh, to Lottie Moon. And so uh, certainly you're to be commended for that. Uh, I know that right now Tom Elif, our leader of the International Mission Board, uh, he's heartbroken about something. Uh, they have 1,400 of our missionaries in the pipeline right now who have gone through the language training the cultural training, uh, they've been in training for two or three years. They are ready to go to the mission field to be commissioned. Uh, 1,400 new missionaries. But there are only funds right now that as of today, we can send 576 out of the 1,400. Lack of funds. And so the overall goal this year is 175 million versus 150 million. And it's going to take a commitment of God's people and, and the giving of God's people because there are those ready to go. And so we would ask you to be praying even now about your part in this, about, uh, about giving. Again, let's not, let's not leave that many of our missionaries uh, stateside who are just waiting to be told that the funds are available to go. So let's help out in that regard. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word? Paul says, beginning in verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement 
of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning with confession because we must admit that oftentimes our lives are polluted by the things of the world. And yet Jesus told us that we are to be the salt and the light of the world. And he warned us not to lose our saltiness or not to conceal our light. Lord, may we recommit our lives today to ministry, to walking worthily of this call that you have placed on our lives as Christians. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart for others. That we would live in such a way to impact them in the maximum way. And so if there is anything about our lives that would hurt our testimonies, that we would deal with that. Lord, use the preaching of your word today to edify, to encourage, also to challenge your church. And we make this our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I want you to think this morning about at least four different calls that are upon the lives of Christians. Four calls that we read about in the scripture. First of all, there is the call to salvation. Where God says, come in. It's like what he told Noah and Noah's family when he told Noah to come into the ark and to shut the door. Come in. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And so there's that very clear call in the word of God to salvation. But secondly, I want you to keep in mind the uh, the call in the word of God to, to come aside. To come aside. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to his disciples, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There are times in a believer's life where he may experience fatigue or burnout, and he just needs to come aside for times of refreshment. Third call we see in the scripture is to come out. Come out from among them and be ye separate. A call to holiness and purity. And then a fourth call of believers in the New Testament that we read about. God says come up. When he calls us home to be with him. Like like he told John in the book of Revelation. Come up here. One of these days every believer is going to hear those words. Come up. When it's our time to go and meet the Lord or the rapture of the church occurs. And so four very clear calls to to believers that we have in the word of God. Well what I want to do this morning is I want to concentrate on that third call. The call to come out and be separate. A call to holiness. And what we see in the passage of scripture that we've read this morning is that there's a very clear call for us to be holy. 
For us to be unspotted and unpolluted by the things of the world that we might be the salt and the light that Jesus has called us to be. First thing I want you to notice with this morning, and we're going to spend most of our our time here this morning, is I want you to see with me that there is a prohibition to be understood. He says in verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now folks, we don't hear much about this passage today because I think it is so misunderstood. There are a lot of people who erroneously believe that separation means isolation from the world. And when it comes to isolation, there have been some extremes in church history. I think of that period of church history. When the monasteries were being built and monks felt it was their call to come out and isolate themselves off from the world and go and live together in these monasteries and have have no contact with the outside world whatsoever. And sometimes a few of them even went to extremes beyond that. I think of the testimony of a man in church history by the name of Simeon uh, Stylitz. He lived from 388 B.C. to 459 uh, uh, A.D., I should say, 388 uh, A.D. to 459 A.D. And he was a monk and he felt it was his special calling in life to go out into the desert. And on top of this high column, he built a platform and for 37 years he lived up there. And he had no contact with the outside world other than the fact that young boys from the nearby villages would have to climb, would have to scale the column to bring food and water up to him. And while he lived up there for 37 years, he wouldn't allow any contact with women because he thought if any women came around him, somehow or another he might be polluted with temptation. He did not even allow his mother to come around. In fact, when she died, he just gave instructions that her remains, some of her remains would be brought to him so that he could bid her farewell. Folks, that is absolutely ridiculous. Christ has not commissioned his church to... to, go out and and to live in little communities and refuse all contact with the outside world. In fact, the Gospels plainly tell us how Jesus associated with, with publicans and tax collectors. He rubbed shoulders with them in order to win them to salvation. And so separation does not mean isolation. Now we're not to be isolated altogether from the world very clearly if we follow the example of Jesus. But also I want you to turn with me to what Paul said about this in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 beginning in verse 9 Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so do you see Paul's balance there? He's not talking about isolation from the world, but rather insulation. God wants us being a witness to a lost world. We're to make friends for Jesus' sake. There is to be friendship but not fellowship. There is insulation but not isolation. And so separation is not about isolation. It is also not about legalism. Some people seem to love to take their convictions about little gray areas in the Christian life and they use their personal preferences as a club to beat others over the head with. And that's how the Pharisees in Jesus' day lived. And the Bible doesn't want us doing that. In fact, we looked briefly at Romans uh, Romans 14 last week, what Paul said about these little gray areas in the Christian life. Now, we're not talking about those things that the Bible tells us about in plain black and white. But what is a Christian to do in those little gray areas of life? Well, Paul lays two principles down there. He says, number one, whatever you do in life, do out of faith. Do in such a way that you could stand and face the Lord and look Him in the eye and feel like uh, you had the okay to do whatever it is that you were doing. So whatever you're going to do, be able to do by faith. A second principle Whatever you do, do in such a way that you won't be a stumbling block to another believer. If you have some type of liberty that you feel like you have, but by carrying through with that liberty, you are going to become a stumbling block to another believer. Paul says, I'm not going to use my liberties in that way. And so separation doesn't mean a refusal to fellowship with every other Christian who doesn't share your exact convictions on non-essentials. There are many smaller points of theology that sincere Bible-believing Christians have some honest differences on how those things are to be interpreted. And so separation doesn't mean that we fellowship only with believers in our exact theological camp. And again, we're talking about the non-essentials in theology. And so misunderstanding about separation has perhaps kept some believers from living a separated life. But folks, I want you to notice here, God gives a very clear command. He gives a very clear prohibition. And look again at verse 14, what he says there. He says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now that commandment goes back to Leviticus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy 22. And Deuteronomy 
we're told that you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. There you have two different kind of beasts all together with two different temperaments and natures. And the Old Testament law listed a donkey as being among the unclean animals and an ox as being among the clean animals. And you hook an ox and a donkey together uh, with a yoke. And Now I don't know from experience but from what I've read supposedly you are in for deep trouble. Because those two animals are not going to plow together and they are not going to cooperate with one another. The donkey is high strung and rebellious and stubborn and the ox possesses more of a quiet strength. Now what Paul is doing by using that command out of Deuteronomy and applying it to people. Folks he's, he's giving an analogy. An analogy here based on the animal kingdom. And he's saying that believers are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We have different natures. For example, as a born again child of God, you have a new nature. The Holy Spirit of the living God has quickened your spirit. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but you've been quickened. You've been made alive. You're supposed to be living according to Matthew 6, uh, 33 where Jesus said seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the direction that you and I as believers are supposed to be walking in. Now somebody of this world is walking in a different direction. They're walking according to the pleasures of this world, according to their own comforts and pleasures and desires, their own agenda. And so you put a believer together with that person and and you're at cross purposes. That's why the prophet Amos asked the question, can two walk together unless they are agreed? And the obvious answer is no. Well, Paul gives us five questions here that he enumerates on this prohibition and helps us to understand it better. And and he's pairing things up in these questions that don't belong together. First of all, notice what he asks. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? You take a believer who's trying to seek the things above. As Paul said in Colossians 3.1, we seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. A believer is supposed to be living that way and seeking to live his life in such a way to bring honor and glory to Christ. On the other hand, there's a believer, I mean an unbeliever, who may mock at the Word of God or scoff at the Word of God. Maybe they live in lawlessness or they think the commands of God are too restrictive or they're just pure nonsense. Well, you put those two people together and what do you have? You have confusion and disagreement. If they try to do something together, what happens? You have trouble because you have two entirely different sets of goals. Well, a second scenario he sets up with the question, what fellowship has light with darkness? Again, the answer is obvious. There is no partnership because light and darkness are mutually exclusive. Where one exists, the other does not. You walk into a dark room and you cut on a light switch and what happens to the darkness? It flees. 
things. Third scenario, what harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial is an Old Testament name for Satan. It's the only time that word is used here in the New Testament. And Paul asks, what harmony? Now the word that he uses there for harmony is the word from which we get our word symphony. So what symphony? What harmony? What kind of music can you have together between Satan and Christ? There is no agreement. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, he had come to destroy the works of the devil. Fourth scenario, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? On the physical level, it certainly may appear that there's a lot of agreement between us. I mean, after all, we, we, we have a, a, a physical body just like unbelievers do. And we all live under the same sun and, and stars and moon and, and the same rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the deeper things of life. What do we have in common with unbelievers? The answer should be nothing. Our worldviews are different. Our convictions are different. Our philosophies are different. Our goals in life are different. Finally, you ask here, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We can't worship God and idols at the same time. In the Old Testament, they tried to do this. They tried to worship Baal and God, and God would have none of it. Folks, do you remember Elijah's question to the multitudes on Mount Carmel? When there was that showdown between Elijah, prophet of God, and and the prophets of Baal. That Jezebel had. Do you remember when they had that showdown on the mountain? The God who answers by fire. He's God. And all the people were gathered there. And Elijah looked out at the masses of people. And he said, how long are you going to halt between two positions? If Baal is God, then serve him. But if Jehovah God is the Lord then serve him. Let the God who answers by fire be recognized as God. And we know what happened in that scenario. Jehovah God answered by fire. Elijah was asking the people to make up their minds. I think also about the children of of Israel. And and how God told them to to be separate from the nations around them. And, And oftentimes they didn't live that way. And what did it end up doing? It ended up arousing the anger of God. Now in all five of these scenarios or questions, the Apostle Paul is setting up contrast to make his point. None of those pairs, in each of those five questions, none of those pairs belong together. They have no association with one another. They are of different natures. And what he's doing is using that as an analogy for us. Now the reason unbelievers love the things of the world is because of their unredeemed nature. They naturally love the things of the world because the things of the world are all they have. 
And the reason that believers are not supposed to love the things of the world is because of our new nature. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if a man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's why the Bible warns us to examine our own lives. Because if we do not love the Word of God and we do not love the people of God and we do not love the things of God and if that is the pattern of our life folks it doesn't matter what we profess with our lips if very consistently we do not love what God loves then we need to ask ourselves am I really even a believer? Now another reason that believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers is because of compromise. In a relationship where two are unequally yoked, who is going to compromise? Usually the Christian will. Because if you think about it, the unbeliever really doesn't have anything to compromise. The story is told of a man who had a beautiful singing canary. His neighbor had a sparrow. The neighbor said, I'd like my sparrow to sing like your canary. Why don't you let me bring my sparrow over to your house and put in the same cage with your canary and maybe the association will cause my sparrow to sing like your canary. Well, the other fellow agreed and after a few days he brought the sparrow back and he said that his canary would no longer sing. He said, my canary now all he's doing is chirping like a sparrow. Well, if we're to be friends with sinners and win them to Christ, then what does this verse mean? It means that we are not to link up with unbelievers in any kind of meaningful partnerships, in any kind of covenant relationships. Now, the question is that people ask, when Paul gives this prohibition in verse 14, exactly who is he talking about? What is he talking about? Well, I think first and foremost from studying through the book of 2 Corinthians, the answer is rather obvious. Paul has been warning the Corinthians about those false teachers who have come in among them and they are trying to lead the people astray and tell the believers there at Corinth that they do not necessarily need to embrace the gospel of grace that the apostle Paul has been preaching. They're trying to lead people astray. And Paul is warning the Corinthians, if you continue to allow them in your midst, if you continue to link your lives up to them and listen to what it is that they're saying because they are denying that Jesus is the only way of salvation, if you continue to allow this linkage in your midst, then you're going to mess up your testimony. They're going to lead you astray. And so come out from among them. Be separate from them. Don't be unequally yoked together with them. Those in the church who stand for the gospel need to stand together for the gospel. Amen? Amen. It's a sacred trust that God has given to us. 
And he's saying that we need to be very careful about those most intimate relationships that we allow that could take us away from the gospel. Again, I make reference to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. When God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they'd wandered in the wilderness and under Joshua they were about to go into the promised land, you'll recall how God commanded Joshua and all the Israelites, when you get into the promised land, you need to drive out the Canaanites because the Canaanites were pagans. They had all kinds of false gods and idols. And he said, if you allow them to remain in your midst, they're going to carry your hearts astray. And unfortunately, that is exactly what ended up happening. And again, it aroused the anger and the judgment of God. Now, as we enlarge upon what Paul might be speaking of here, again, those false teachers, the first application, that they weren't to be unequally yoked with those. But we know today, Bible scholars have used verse 14 to really reference a couple other relationships we need to be very careful of. First of all is that relationship of marriage. We're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. A, a young man who's a dedicated Christian needs to pray for a Christian bride and vice versa. I don't know how many people I've counseled with over the course of my ministry. Usually it's a woman that comes to me. She was a believer and hoped that she'd finally win her husband over. Uh, when the guy over, she married him. He became her husband. She could influence him that way. And it usually never happens. When she sits in my office broken hearted. Because the marriage is in trouble, they're going two different directions in life. And so you can use this of marriage. Now let me say what it does not mean regarding that. What if two people who are unbelievers get married? One of them becomes a believer and the other does not. Then they're unequally yoked. So the Corinthians asked Paul, in that case, does the believer need to split up the marriage and go find another believing spouse? He says, absolutely not. You stay in the marriage. If there's going to be divorce and division, let it be the unbeliever who walks away. But believers are always to be agents of reconciliation where that's possible. And plus, he says, to the believing spouse, he says, you might be able to have a sanctifying influence on your children. Another area where this verse is applied oftentimes today is in the area of business partnerships. Now, folks, I'm not just talking about normal employees and employers and, and, and who you're supposed to hire or who you're not supposed to hire. What I'm talking about here is ownership where there are two partners that come together to buy a business. You need to be very careful. Because one partner is going to want to base the business on biblical principles and another partner is going to base it on, on things of the world. Whatever you need to do to turn a profit. And so they're going to be headed for trouble. And so it can apply to that. 
Now, thinking in all honesty about other employment beyond that, what if you work for a company that makes something or deals in something that is a direct violation of the Word of God? Again, I'm not talking about one of those gray areas of Scripture. I'm talking about one of those black and white areas. And you work for a company that does something that you know the Word of God is strongly against. Well, in that case, I would simply ask God to place me somewhere else. Folks, I realize that these are sticky areas we can get into. But we need to have that priority in our lives. What Paul is saying, we need to be very careful about our associations and what our associations in life can end up doing to us. That's why the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, be very careful about the company that you hang out with. Because bad company can corrupt good morals. Now look at verse 16. Look at verse 16, what he says there. He says, don't you understand? We are the temple of the living God. We don't want to be unequally yoked because what is God's desire? God wants to dwell in us. God wants to be comfortable in your heart. How can he be comfortable in your heart and life if there's a partnership that is always driving you away from God? God wants to be that, he wants you to be his temple. And the word there is for temple is not the general word for temple in the Old Testament. But it is the word, the area of the temple that referred to the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies in the the Old Testament temple was the place that the high priest could go one time a year. And there one time a year he would make that sacrifice uh, there on the seat of mercy for the the atonement uh, uh, of the sins of the people. And only the high priest could go. Go in there and only he one time of year. But that's where God dwelt. What Paul is saying to the church here. You need to be separate from the world. Because don't you realize your life, your heart. God wants it to be the holy of holies. That he can dwell there. And do his work in your life. And so that's why he gives this prohibition. That we're to understand. Now secondly I want you to notice with me this morning. That there is a promise to be underscored. Pick up reading with me in verse 17. He says therefore go out from their midst. And be separate from them says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. Says the Lord Almighty. The command that he has just given is tied to a promise. And from here on out in the the passage, I want you to notice the words of promise. God says over and over again, I will. If you obey this, I will. I'll do this and I'll do that. And you shall be this and you shall be that. There's promise. But again, folks, I want you to notice the promise is tied to the previous commandment. And let me stop and camp out there for just a minute. Because I think that's a word that Christians today need to hear. I don't know of any Christian today who does not want 
God's favor on his or her life. Who doesn't want God's favor? We all want God's favor. But sometimes we want God's favor on our terms. And it doesn't work that way. He's talking here about the favor of God that comes to us if we first obey the command that he's just set forth in verse 14. And again, look at verse 17, this promise. He says, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. The word welcome or receive in verse 17 means receive with favor. With favor. When you are saved, you become a forever member of God's household. But God says, I not only want you to share my life, I want you to enjoy my love. Love creates separation. You take a woman who's in love with her husband and she's a beautiful lady at work. There may be men who are making advances on her, but it is her love for her husband that keeps her devoted to him. And what the scripture is saying here, our love for God is to keep us devoted to him. And as we're devoted to him, we will experience His presence and His fullness. His presence and His fullness. And look at what He says in verse 18. I will be a father to you. Well, He's already our father if we've come to Him through faith in His Son. But what He's saying here, He really wants to be a father to us. There's a difference. And let me explain that. A man can have a rebellious son. Is he still the son of that father? Yes. But if that son runs off, it is hard for that father to really be a father to him or to really be a dad. He desires to be, but he can't. God is saying, I really want to be a father to you. I really want to be a daddy to you. I want you to come out from among them and be separate and examine your lives and be holy and pure because I want to dwell in your life. I want you to experience my love and my fullness. And if you're allowing unhealthy relationships or sin to be on the throne of your heart, then I can't be in your heart and do what I want to do. It's a simple principle that Paul is laying down for us here. It's like God is essentially saying, if you'll separate yourselves from that which grieves my heart, our fellowship together can be so much more wonderful. I think of Abraham in the Old Testament. Remember where Abraham first lived. He was Abram and he dealt He he dwelt in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. He dwelt among his father's people. And God said to Abram, Abram, I want you to leave your father's people and his household and go to a new land that I'm going to show you. And there in that new land, I am going to build a new nation through you. And you will be the father of many descendants. Now folks, for Abraham to enjoy that blessing from God, what did he have to do? He had to pack his bags and leave, right? And so what's God saying here? 
you got to pack your bags of the things of the world that are grievous to God. you got to get rid of those things, send those things away. You've got to live as that new creation in Christ and keep your eyes on Him. And then you're going to experience the fullness of God's grace. Folks, what a wonderful promise God has given to us. What a wonderful promise. And then thirdly, I want you to see here that there is a process to be undertaken. Look what he says in in verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Separation is a process. There is a negative and a positive. The negative, he says, is let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Now let's take those one at a time for a minute. There are defilements of the flesh. Now what would those things be? Defilements of the flesh would be things like immorality, theft, murder, things of that nature. Defilements of the flesh. And he says we've got to cleanse ourselves of that. Am I involved in any kind of activity that grieves God? I've got to get rid of that. And then secondly he says we've got to get rid of defilements of the spirit. What would the, the spirit, things of the spirit be? That would be things like bitterness maybe or unforgiveness. You see, I can come to Christ and harbor maybe some bitterness in my heart or unforgiveness that I've not dealt with. But I'm not going to be able to walk with God the way He really wants me to until I deal with that bitterness, that that thing in my spirit that grieves God's heart. Folks, what God's people have, have to realize is that we can sit in church and not be aware of anything wrong with it that we're doing with the flesh. But we can be guilty of sins of the Spirit. You know who I think of? I think of the older brother in the case of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son came back home, he had been out in the far country doing all kinds of wretched things, squandering away his inheritance. He repented. He came back home. The father welcomed him, but the older son didn't. The older son was bitter in his heart. The older son had never left the father's house and yet he too was guilty of sin. And so he says in this process we've got to look at our lives from both perspectives. From the flesh and the spirit. And get rid of what is hindering us. And then the positive thing that he goes on to mention at the end of verse 7. He says we need to bring to completion Holiness. He's talking here about sanctification. This process where daily I'm to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. That doesn't happen overnight. But as I yield myself to God and live in obedience, His Spirit takes His Word and conforms me to the image of Christ. I'm not what I ought to be yet, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. Amen? 
And that's what a Christian, as he grows in sanctification, ought to continue to be able to say. Yes, I'm growing. I haven't arrived yet. I won't arrive until I see Jesus one day. But praise God, I'm not where I was six months ago. Bring to completion holiness. A wonderful promise that we have here. Wonderful promise of how God wants to work in your heart and my heart. But again, it is tied to a condition. And the condition is separation. You and I are to live as a separated people. Separated away from the world and unto the Lord while we still live in the world. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? I want to ask you, are there things in your life that you are tangled up with as a Christian that you know don't fit the life of a Christian? Are there some things right now that God is bringing to your mind? Now, I'm purposely not going to enumerate on that list because if I were to leave something off, you might think you're home furry. But is there anything in your life that your life is tangled up with that you know brings dishonor to God? And it's keeping you from that relationship with your Heavenly Father that you could otherwise enjoy. Deal with that this morning. How about relationships? Is there any relationship that is holding you down? Now understand carefully relationships. You need to be a friend to that person and be a witness to them. But you don't need to be yoked together with them. Are there some relationships, some unhealthy relationships that you are yoked to. Are you willing to lay that at the Father's feet? Christian, what I especially want you to see this morning is the high price that you are paying if you're not willing to do this. God wants to dwell in your heart richly. But he can't dwell richly where sin is on the throne of your heart. Which are you going to love more? Which are you going to love more? And which are you going to desire more? Lord, help us to understand this passage. Write it on our hearts about what is at stake here. And help us to deal with with those relationships or partnerships in our life that grieve you. Lord, may we love you enough and desire our relationship with you enough that we will purify our lives from anything that we know breaks your heart. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.